You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, Bleeding Green Nation, and welcome back to another edition of Eye on the Enemy, powered by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I'm your host, John Stolness. You can follow me on Twitter at John Stolness. Coming up, I'm going to give you my top 10 players in the NFC East. Uh, the NFC East is, of course, uh, not one of the stronger divisions in football, but when you break down the players, there's a lot of high-level talent in this division mostly residing with uh, your Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys, but a couple others sprinkled in. So we'll go over the top 10 players, at least as far as I'm concerned in the division. And we'll also talk about some of the guys who just missed. And a former Philadelphia Eagles quarterback celebrates his 40th birthday. I want to talk about his career a little bit coming up uh, after the break as well. So we'll do all that coming up here on Eye on the Enemy. But first, just a reminder, folks, to if you haven't left a five-star rating and a review at the Bleeding Green Nation podcast feed on Apple Podcast, please go ahead and do that. I mean, it does help out the podcast a whole lot. You'd be doing us a big favor. Again, that five-star rating and review at the Bleeding Green Nation podcast feed on Apple Podcasts goes a long way. So thanks very much for doing that if you have already. And if you haven't and you wouldn't mind taking a couple minutes, go ahead and do that. Thank you very much. All right, so let's get into the top 10 players in the NFC East for 2020. And, we, you know, it's kind of a dead zone in, in the NFL right now. We're all kind of keeping our fingers crossed as training camp appears to want to get set to open in about a month or so. But in the meantime, we're just kind of waiting it out. And there's still, you know, there's a couple free agents out there who, who could be signed. There's some trade rumors out there involving the Eagles and Jamal Adams and a couple other guys. Jadavian Clowney is still out there. And, you know, the Eagles are not in good cap space for, for 2021, as we talked about on the last episode of the podcast. So I'm not expecting any big moves here before training camp. So it's kind of a little bit of a dead zone. And uh, so, but this, so this seems like a pretty good time to like take stock on what the Eagles have already in house and what the rest of the teams in the division have in house already. And when you're putting together a top 10 list, it's, it's not, it's not easy because you have such difficult positions to compare. How do you compare the quality of a center compared to a running back? It's easy to stack the centers and say this center is better than this guy or this left tackle is the best in the division compared to this left tackle. But when you're comparing a center to a running back or an edge rusher to a quarterback, it's, it's a little difficult. Now, pro, pro football focus helps with their grading system, but I don't look at those grades as gospel. They're helpful. You'll hear me mention them and reference them in the next few minutes, and I'll have a piece about this on BleedingGreenNation.com uh, for you to, to look at and to comment on as well, because I'm sure you will disagree with my list. I am 100 because I, I went back and forth on my list a bunch of times. Uh, I, had, I had a different number one for a little while before I finally settled on the guy that I settled. So this is a tricky list to put together because you can't just look at stats and com and compare stats. They 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 play different positions. I mean these the the linemen don't really even accrue stats for the most part. I mean they do, but they're different. It's just it's it's difficult to compare the different positions with each other. But 
Uh, here's my ranking. And of course, you will you will disagree with it. So uh, when the piece is up at bleedinggreennation.com, you can take a look at it there as well. And you can comment on who you think are the best players in the NFC East, because you will certainly have people that I did not have in my top 10, likely anyway. All right. The guy that I believe is the number one player in the NFC East. And again, I, I had a different player here for probably the first couple iterations of this list as I went and, and put it together is Lane Johnson, offensive tackle for the Philadelphia Eagles. And I went back and forth between Johnson and the guy who finishes who finished second on this list. But at the end of the day, I feel like offensive tackle is slightly more crucial to the offense than an interior guard, which is who is the second player that I had on this list. And, and I will also say I probably would have had Brandon Brooks on this list. Probably, perhaps even at the top of the list. I, I think Brandon Brooks is one of the one of the three or four best offensive linemen in football, and I think he's probably the best player on the Eagles and maybe the best player in the division. But this list is for 2020, and after tearing his Achilles, Brandon Brooks will not be playing in 2020, so I had to leave him off this list entirely. So I went with Lane Johnson as the best player in the NFC East because he is one of the best, if not the best, right tackle in football right now. Last year, in 759 offensive snaps, he allowed one sack and committed five penalties the entire season with a, for a PFF grade of 88.8. So with Brooks out for the season with a torn Achilles, Johnson's job got a little bit tougher. Matt Pryor is going to take over, or like is likely to take over, directly to his left, replacing Brandon Books at right guard. And so Lane Johnson's responsibilities on the right side of the line are, are going to grow even more. Now, Johnson has played with Pryor beside him quite a bit these last couple of years, as Brooks has missed some time. Uh, with, again, the Achilles injury that he suffered against the Saints, but also with some other injuries and uh, some, some some nagging issues as well. So it's not as if Lane Johnson has, has never played on the right side without Brandon Brooks, but it does make things harder because Brooks is so good. It is going to hurt the offensive line to, to not have him in there, but that's what makes Lane Johnson on the right side of that line so important. We saw it last year when he wasn't able to play, how, how much different the Eagles' offense was. It doesn't function as well without Lane Johnson. And so when you, when you tally up all the different players in the division, all the edge rushers, the guards, the, uh, the offensive playmakers, Lane Johnson is the most consistent and I think just the, pure, the best pure football player in the division at a, at a spot. It would, can you imagine if he was a left tackle? I mean, I think at some point we thought Lane Johnson might move to left tackle, but I, I think he's great where he is. It's an important spot on the line. Lane Johnson is the best player in the NFC East, but it was close. And the guy that I almost had in the number one spot was Zach Martin, offensive guard for Dallas. I was initially going to put Martin at the top of the list, given his status as one of the game's elite offensive guards. Check out these numbers. He played 1,114 snaps last year and allowed zero sacks and committed just two penalties. His PFF grade of 88.1 was just slightly below Johnson's, which is one of the reasons why I ended up putting him underneath Lane Johnson. His ability to produce in the run game for Ezekiel Elliott is what makes him a great player. He's also, a, obviously, you could, you could hear by the statistics, he allowed zero sacks last season, committed just two penalties. He's also obviously great in the passing game. But I do think the fact that he plays guard and not tackle puts him just ever so slightly below behind Johnson in the pecking order of best players in the NFC East. Martin's a stud. He's a great player. I think he's the number two player in the division. 
Moving on to number three. I know this guy had a little bit of a down year last year, but when you just when you just step back and you ask yourself, who are the best players in this division? I think Fletcher Cox has to be here. Defensive tackle for the Philadelphia Eagles, of course. Cox only had three and a half sacks last year, which was obviously not so good, especially for the amount of money that the Eagles are paying him. They're, they're paying him to be an impact Pro Bowl defensive tackle. And look, frankly, he just was not that last year. But he also spent most of the offseason and the first part of the regular season dealing with the toe injury that he suffered in the divisional round against the Saints the year before. And at the start of the season, he was supposed to have Malik Jackson rushing the passer next to him to take some of the pressure off. But Jackson was lost in the opening week for the season due to an injury. And so no matter how good a player you are, if you don't have any help, it's really hard to be productive, especially when you're also battling an injury. So that's part of what was going on with Cox last season. Now, Cox has Jackson back, and we assume Jackson is going to be healthier here in 2020. And the team went out and added another inside pass rushing specialist in Javon Hargraves. So between getting a little more help and hopefully staying healthy to start the season, and we don't know what injuries might befall a player during training camp. Cox could hurt himself in training camp or in the preseason if there is one. Or early in the season, but I feel like Cox is a is is a great bounce back candidate. When with with all this help on the inside, he should answer back with a career year here in 2020. And when he does, he'll reestablish himself as a potential defensive player of the year. I mean, year in and year out, that's what Fletcher Cox has been a potential defensive player of the year. And so when you just look at the quality of player, uh, the upside, I think Fletcher Cox, and maybe this is a little bit of a homer in me to have him this high given the season that he had last year. But I think Fletcher Cox is easily a top five player in the NFC East, and I have him at number three on my list. At number four, I have running back Saquon Barkley from the New York Giants. And listen, running backs are devalued in this NFL. I get it, and I understand why. Because you you can get a guy like Miles Sanders in the second round, and guy looks like he's turning into a stud. You don't need to spend the number two overall pick on a running back like like the New York Giants did. But there's no denying Barkley's talent. There's no denying how good he is. One year after leading all NFL players in yards from scrimmage, he totaled 2,028 yards from scrimmage in 2019. Barkley missed a few games last year, three games due to injury, but still finished with 1,441 yards from scrimmage and had 1,003 rushing yards last year. And we remember that run against the Eagles in Week 17 when uh, the Giants were down 17-10, to 10, and he ripped off a long one just like it was like it was nothing, untouched to the end zone. You saw the speed, you saw the acceleration, you saw how amazing he is at making people miss. Barkley scares the crud out of every defense he plays, and he plays on a team with absolutely no playmakers anywhere else. So while running backs have been devalued in recent years, and understandably so, Saquon Barkley is is still easily one of the five best players in the NFC East, and I have him at number four on my list. If you were starting, and, and you know, I have another NFC East running back on my list down here a little bit further, and I'll go into why I chose Saquon Barkley as the best running back in the division over this other player. And you know who I'm talking about. Number five on the list, Jason Kelsey, Philadelphia Center. Jason, please don't retire. Please don't, please don't ever retire. Kelsey played 1,163 snaps last year, committed just three penalties, and allowed two sacks with a PFF rating of 81. That's an amazing season, especially at his age, especially with... I think there was a piece in The Athletic last year that 
detailed all of the injuries, all of the nagging ouchies <laughs> that a football player like Jason Kelsey goes through during the course of a season. And I say ouchies, not to it doesn't. I don't want to minimize the unbelievable pain that these NFL players go through on a week in, week out basis. And and reading what Jason Kelsey has to go through to get ready to play every week. I'm amazed he hasn't retired already because it's unbelievable. And the fact that he can be this productive while battling this many nagging injuries and, and, and nicks and, and, and all, all the things that a player has to go through in order to get himself on the field and get ready every week. It's really incredible. And, and the fact that he is really a, a different kind of center. He, he's so mobile. He's so athletic. His ability to get downfield in the run game and, help diagnose defenses with Carson Wentz makes him one of the most, if not the most invaluable member of Doug Peterson's offense. I know that if he goes down, Isaac Samalo could, could move into the center spot and the Eagles would probably be okay, but they, they would not be getting Jason Kelsey. Jason Kelsey is going to go down as one of the greatest players in franchise history, aside from being one of the most entertaining and uh, one, one of the best uh, one of the best talkers in the NFL. Um, so he's amazing. I think he's the fifth best player in the division still, even at his age. And every year could be his last year in Philadelphia. So please try to make sure you appreciate Jason Kelsey while he's here. The number six player in the NFC East, Lyle Collins, offensive tackle from the Dallas Cowboys. And if Lane Johnson is the best offensive tackle in the division, then Collins is right behind him on his heels. His PFF grade of 86.4 is obviously outstanding. He gave up just two sacks last year, committed just five penalties in 1,000 snaps, and did a fantastic job protecting Dak Prescott and opening up running lanes for Ezekiel Elliott. Lyle Collins is a fantastic player and will continue to be a fantastic player for a long while. And if you have him higher on your list, I wouldn't blame you. Lyle Collins is a stud. You could make an argument why he should be above Jason Kelsey, because as I mentioned with Lane Johnson, offensive tackle is probably the most important position on the offensive line. And you can tell so far, we've only had one skill position here among the top six. This division is loaded with linemen. It's a it's a division that's that's got a lot of good offensive and defensive linemen here, and mostly offensive linemen. Both these teams' offensive lines are their strengths. And so that's why you have so many of these offensive linemen among the top 10, especially among the top six here. So this is not a list that's going to have a lot of skill position players. And maybe that's why the the NFC East is among the worst divisions in football is because they, they don't have a ton of great players at the skill positions, especially at the bottom of the division, uh, with the exception of Saquon Barkley. But anyway, uh, Lyle Collins, number six on my list of the best players in the NFC East. So to recap so far, we've got Lane Johnson at number one, Zach Martin at number two, Fletcher Cox at number three, Saquon Barkley at four, Jason Kelsey at five, and Lyle Collins at number six. At number seven on my list is a newcomer to the NFC East, cornerback Darius Slay for the Eagles. And I was asked last week, and we talked about it on this podcast, if the Eagles have the the best secondary in the division. And as I thought about it and I looked at the rosters, the answer was surprisingly yes. They do have the best secondary, and, and we do look at the Eagles secondary as a big question mark heading into 2020 because we don't know what we're going to get out of the safety position with Jalen Mills and Rodney McLeod. We don't know how the other cornerbacks are going to line up. Is Sidney Jones going to be uh, going to have a more a larger role with the defense based on how he finished last season and the fact that they drafted him in the second round? Is Avante Maddox going to bounce back after 
what was not a great sophomore season and, and be more like the player he was in his rookie season, uh, is, is Russell Douglas going to jump into the mix and, and you know provide the, the same kind of uh, production that he did as a number three corner, as a number four corner? But we, we, we ask all these different things. But the, the, the only team in the division with a true number one cornerback is the Philadelphia Eagles and Darius Slay. And really, the former Detroit Lion is the Eagles' first true shutdown corner since, since probably, what, Asante Samuel? And, and Samuel didn't really shut down receivers as much as he came up with big plays. He was, a, he was a ball hawk and had great ball skills. But it's not like you could put Asante Samuel on one side of the field and just shut things down. Slay is more of a lockdown cornerback. Uh, than Asante Samuel. And Slay will get his picks. He, he's he's not like Ronald Darby, who when the ball's in the air, it looks like he's wearing boxing gloves when, he, when he's trying to bring the ball down. Slay should be able to lock down an opposing team's best weapon, so you should be able to put him on Amari Cooper if Amari Cooper ends up being Dallas's most dynamic offensive weapon and reasonably expect him to do a pretty good job over there, if not lock down that receiver on on certain days and to get you the picks every now and then. So that's a that's a, that's a huge lift to a defense that hasn't had that in a long time. It gives it gives Jim Schwartz such so much more freedom to blitz a little bit more often, to have the team pin their ears back and, and go after the opposing cornerback because it also takes the pressure off of the rest of the secondary. I mean, you don't you you can you can try and mix and match your different players in the secondary if you've got that true number 1 corner. And no other team in the division has a cornerback as good as Darius Slay. Slay's a great player. I'm not thrilled that the I would have rather seen the Eagles go out and get Byron Jones and just sign him as a free agent rather than trade for Darius Slay and give up the the draft prospects. But now that he's here, very happy Darius Slay is in the Eagles secondary and he's the number seven player in in the uh, NFC East. At number eight is another newcomer to the division, the Dallas Cowboys defensive tackle, Gerald McCoy. Now, McCoy is on the downside of his career at this point. He's a six-time Pro Bowler, but has not made the Pro Bowl each of the last two years. His numbers are trending down a little bit. He finished with five sacks last season, but that is one and a half sacks more than Cox, and it was his lowest total in seven years. He turns 32 this year, but I still think he's going to be a force inside the the Cowboys' uh, interior. You could make the argument, I suppose, that you'd put McCoy ahead of Fletcher Cox because he has one and a half more sacks. But honestly, if you're putting these two teams together and you had your choice to take Fletcher Cox or Gerald McCoy, who are you taking? You're taking Fletcher Cox. You're not selecting Gerald McCoy over Fletcher Cox. And when it came to some tough decisions here with this list, that's kind of how I defaulted. If I could choose any of these players to start a team, which one would I take for this season alone? And I think the upside of Fletcher Cox and, and Fletcher Cox's uh, uh, history tells you that he should be higher on this list. And so that's why I have him where I do. And I have Gerald McCoy at number eight. But Gerald McCoy is a big addition for the Cowboys. They absolutely needed to bring him aboard to help fortify uh, the interior of the defensive line. And, you know, he's going to cause problems for the Eagles interior on the offensive line this season. I think Gerald McCoy still has a lot left in the tank, but he is on the downside of his career. He'll be age 32 this season. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see exactly how much Dallas is able to get out of him here in 2020. Moving on to number nine, and here's where I have um, only the second skill position player on this list, and that's Ezekiel Elliott running back for the Dallas Cowboys. I really had to go back and forth between Elliott and Saquon Barkley as to who is the best running back in the NFC East. And this is a division which is really rich with running backs, with the exception of Washington. You've got Elliott, you've got Barkley, and you've got the emerging Miles Sanders. 
That's three very talented runners, and Miles Sanders might start to elbow in his, elbow his way into the conversation as best running back in the NFC East, although he's he's still got a ways to go to catch up to Elliott and Barkley, who are both absolutely phenomenal runners. But when I was looking at who do I have higher on the pecking order, Ezekiel Elliott or Saquon Barkley, if you looked in terms of pure talent, and if you're asking me, again, to pick which running back I want for, for 2020 to start a brand new team, I'm going with Saquon Barkley over Ezekiel Elliott. Because I think Barkley, just based on terms of pure talent, he's better. But if if you had Elliott ahead of Barkley, based on the fact that he's led that he's led the league in rushing yards two out of his four seasons, that he totaled 1,777 yards from scrimmage last year, I absolutely could not blame you. There, Ezekiel Elliott is a phenomenal runner. It's real close between him and Saquon Barkley. I think Barkley gives you a little bit more. I think Barkley is a little bit more dynamic. Elliott is a little bit more reliable in terms of staying healthy and staying on the field. Barkley missed a few games last year. There's there's no doubt that, um, you know, running backs are going to get dinged up. But Elliott has been extremely durable, extremely reliable. He's a great runner. So it, it's, like, again, a very, very close call between these two. But I have Saquon Barkley ahead of Ezekiel Elliott in terms of running backs in the division. And based on everybody else in the division, I put Elliott at number nine on my list. If you had him a little higher, again, couldn't blame you. If you had him out of the top ten altogether, I think... I, here's the thing. I initially had Ezekiel Elliott out of my top 10, and I had to redo my list because I was like, he's got to be in there. He's got to be one of the 10 best players in the NFC East. So Ezekiel Elliott at number nine. Number 10, and this is probably one that's going to cause a lot of controversy. I felt like one of the two quarterbacks had to be here at number 10 because Carson Wentz and Dak Prescott are both good players. They're both really good players and really important players. And both guys have played or have been in the MVP conversation at various points in their career. So I felt like, let me, you can't do a list like this involving the Eagles and the Cowboys without having the Dak versus Carson conversation. And it's been litigated to death. I still don't think there's a consensus as to whether Wentz or Dak Prescott is quote unquote, the best quarterback. I believe that Carson Wentz is the better quarterback. I think Carson Wentz has more talent. I think Carson Wentz has more upside than Dak Prescott. I think we've seen Dak's ceiling. I think Carson hasn't shown his ceiling um, quite as much, but when he has, the ceiling is is much higher. So I have Carson Wentz here at number 10, the, the 10th best player in the division. And it was a debate in my head for quite some time because I think Prescott has been more consistent in his four years in the league. He's been more consistent He's had fewer ups and downs than Carson Wentz, and he has been less injury-prone. Those are two big factors. That's just the honest truth. But again, using the argument, if I was starting a team and I was putting a team together here in 2020, and you asked me to choose which quarterback I would rather have, it would be Carson Wentz. Because in 2017, Wentz showed that he has the ability to play at an MVP-like level. And over the last month of last season, Wentz outplayed Prescott as the two were battling each other for the division title. And Wentz had far less help at the skill position, specifically at wide receiver. People forget Wentz was the first quarterback in NFL history to throw for more than 4,000 yards without a single wide receiver who had more than 500 yards receiving. Alshon Jeffrey came the closest with 490 yards. You had Aguilar with 363, Greg Ward with 254, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside with 169, Deshaun Jackson 159, Mac Hollins 125. That was it, man. How did he throw for 4,000 yards? How did he get that team into the playoffs last year? 
There's absolutely no reason why the Eagles should have been in the postseason last year. None. None. It was Carson Wentz who put the team on his back and did it. And I've seen Carson do that. He did that in 2017. I have yet to see Dak Prescott put the Dallas Cowboys on his back and carry them someplace. Because when Dak Prescott has taken the Cowboys to the postseason, he's been very good. He's led some fourth quarter comebacks. He, he's been a he's been he's a very good quarterback, but he has also had way more help than Carson Wentz has has had in his career. If both players had the same talent at wide receiver, and if Wentz had the benefit of a dynamic running game for his entire career as Prescott has, the gap between these two I don't think would be as close as it is. I think I think Carson Wentz would would be much higher on everyone's list, not just my list, but everyone's list compared to Dak Prescott. Prescott's had more help. And listen, that's not as that's not a slam against Prescott. That's just the way it is. And so hopefully the Eagles have gone out this offseason and if you have a healthy Deshaun Jackson and Jalen Rager comes in and he's able to produce, Carson Wentz has some more people to throw to. Again, that remains to be seen. But if I'm if I'm choosing between these two quarterbacks, I'm choosing Carson Wentz to be on my team over Dak Prescott. But again, it is a very, very close call. Now, some of the guys who just missed, it was really hard to leave off edge rusher Demarcus Lawrence as well as Amari Cooper. Uh, Cooper probably would have been included in my top 10, but he really did fade last year due to injuries. And I just, I can't get past the fact that at the end of the game in week 16 between the Eagles and Cowboys, as the Cowboys were driving uh, to go ahead down I mean, to, to try and tie the game down eight points, Amari Cooper wasn't on the field. And he was healthy. Now, Cooper had some injuries that he was struggling with last year, but he wasn't injured in that game. And I can't get past the fact that they didn't have him on the field as the Cowboys failed to, to get the ball in the end zone to finish off the game. I also think Cooper's home road splits are a little bit of a cause for concern. Not exactly sure what you've got there. So I think he's the best wide receiver in the division, uh, but I, I have him outside the top 10. And as for Dak Prescott, I nearly put him at number 10 instead of Wentz. I would probably have Dak at number 11 on my list if I had kept going. You'll notice that Washington does not have any players in the top 10, and that's one of the reasons why they picked number two in the NFL draft this year. Uh, I wanted to put, I really did, when I was first thinking of this list, I wanted to put their first-round pick, Chase Young, on the list because I do think he's going to have an immediate impact as an edge rusher. I think he's already a good player. But it's hard to have him ahead of some of the more experienced players that are on this list. And I, I thought about putting Ryan Kerrigan in the top 10. He's been a beast in the league for nine years now, and but he only had five and a half sacks last year. So to me, that kind of indicates his years as an elite player are behind him. So he finishes outside the top 10 as well. I also really wanted to put Terry McLaurin on the list because I love this kid. 58 catches for 919 yards and seven touchdowns as a rookie last year. I think great things are in store for him. I think he could surpass Amari Cooper as the best wideout in the division. And I think, uh, if I remember reading this right, PFF actually had McLaren graded as the best wide receiver in the division last year. And that's not nothing. New York, I think, is, as you heard me say, should be improved this year. But when you look at the roster, there just isn't a lot of elite talent. Uh, we'll see what Daniel Jones does in his second season for the Giants. And I think first-round pick Andrew Thomas could be an impact offensive tackle in the league for years. But... He's a rookie. I think he's got to prove it first. And wide receiver Darius Slayton showed some promise and flash in his rookie year, but I don't think he's a top 10 player in the NFC East just yet either. And I think there were a number of Eagles players who also deserved consideration. I think Miles Sanders could be in for a very big season as the Birds' main running back, and he could jump into the top 10. He could join Ezekiel Elliott and Saquon Barkley as a running back among the 10 best players in the division. He is that good. 
tight end Zach Ertz and Dallas Goddard always grade really well. Specifically, Goddard grades really well, according to PFF. They take some targets away from each other, which slightly mutes each other's value or production numbers, but they are the two best tight ends in the division. Be interesting to see how much longer both guys will be able to stay on the team. And Brandon Graham always grades high with PFF, and he continues to be one of the most underrated players in the NFL. Had eight and a half sacks last year in his age 31 seasons. He's a good player, but Brandon does tend to disappear every once in a while for for a couple game stretch, and then he'll he'll have three or four dominant games in a row. So you'd like to see him smooth some of those uh, peaks and valleys out a little bit. But Brandon Graham is one of the best players in the division. I just didn't think it was quite enough to put him in the top 10. We're going to step away and take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Michael Vick for some reason. (laughs) He celebrated his 40th birthday, and I want to ask a question about Mike Vick's legacy with the Philadelphia Eagles. And we'll do that next, coming up on Eye on the Enemy. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And we're back with Eye on the Enemy. So it was Michael Vick's 40th birthday this week. And I just wanted to talk about Mike Vick a little bit. Because to this day, during the height of his powers in Andy Reid's offense, I I think that he is the most talented quarterback the Eagles have ever had. And I think he put together maybe the most impressive season I've ever seen from an Eagles quarterback. And yes, that includes Carson Wentz's 2017. When Andy Reid signed him in 2009 after he had spent time in prison for running a dogfighting ring. Nobody liked it. We, we, were, we were all disgusted about the signing. We couldn't figure out why on earth Andy Reid was taking a chance on this guy. But it became pretty clear that Vic had rehabilitated himself, that he came out of prison a different person. At least I, I feel like he did. I thought he really went above and beyond and did everything he could to earn a, a second chance both in life and on the football field. I think that has continued here as he in retirement. In 2009, he only played one snap behind Donovan McNabb, which was McNabb's last season with the Eagles. And a lot of people forget he wasn't the starter in 2010 to start the season. Kevin Cobb was the guy. The the Eagles were going to go with their former second-round pick, Kevin Cobb, and Vic was going to be the backup. But Cobb struggled a little bit, and then he got hurt. And so then Vic got his chance in his age 30 season, and he lit the world on fire. For that one season, I have never seen a better quarterback wearing Eagles green. And it was just that one season where he was elite. He went eight and three. Um, 
And of course, he had a couple signature games uh, with the Philadelphia Eagles, and I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But he, he threw for 3,018 yards in just 12 starts with 21 touchdowns, six interceptions. He also rushed for 676 yards and nine touchdowns with a league-best 6.8 yards per carry average. He also threw, and I got this note from Ruben Frank, an NFL-best seven touchdowns of at least 45 yards just in that one year. Now, unfortunately, what really killed that season was in the playoffs against the Green Bay Packers, where the Eagles lost at home in their wildcard matchup in a game they absolutely should not have lost. He went 20 of 36 in the wildcard game for 292 yards, one touchdown, one interception, just a 79.9 rating, and he threw this killer interception on a deep ball as the Eagles were driving down 21 to 16 on first and 10 from the Green Bay 27 with 44 seconds left. Toward the end zone, intercepted, Tremont Williams. And with that, the Green Bay Packers will take this one in Philadelphia. Riley Cooper, the intended target, and Tremont Williams intercepts it. The Green Bay Packers, 33 seconds away from a win and a trip to Atlanta. I mean, you just can't take that chance when you've got a first down. You've got four cracks of getting the ball in the end zone or get, moving the ball closer uh, with 44 seconds. There wasn't a lot of time, and I get that, And but Cooper wasn't open, and it was a bad ball. If you're trying to throw a jump ball, as you heard Troy Aikman saying, you got to throw it to the outside and up high so that Cooper can go up and get it, and instead it was back towards the middle of the field. It was just a bad throw. It was a bad decision and a bad throw, and it was it was a disappointing way for the Eagles to end Michael Vick's season. He just didn't he didn't play well in that playoff game, and that is it was really sad. In 2011, he started 13 games, threw for 3,303 yards, but had an 18 to 14 touchdown to interception ratio. He just was not as dynamic in in 2011. But in 2010, I think he had he had two games that I think you can debate which one was his signature game. The first is his legendary performance on Monday Night Football against Washington. Week 6 in 2010, a game the Eagles won 59-28 to when Vic threw for four touchdowns, ran for two more, threw for 333 yards, completed 71.4% of his passes, and also rushed for 80 yards in what was an unbelievably dominant performance. There's play from about the 12, and there is Vic, as you talked about, John, rolling and launching downfield for Deshaun Jackson, who accelerates, caught the opening play, and all the way for a touchdown, 88 yards. And they're rolling on possession five on the right. Vic taking another shot, this from Macklin. Jeremy Macklin pushed off, caught it, touchdown. Oh, man. Never seen anything like this, ever. To give Vic room to run. And score again. Michael Vick, second rushing touchdown of the night from six yards. Unbelievable. It's like a man with boys when he gets outside that pocket. I don't know how you stop this guy. Vic. Keeping the play alive. They find someone in the back. Touchdown of Vance. Somebody get me his autograph. This guy is on fire. I mean, the team had 35 points by the time the second quarter started. It was it was an unbelievable obliteration of a football team. And, and people forget that's the first game the Eagles played against Donovan McNabb in a, in a Washington uniform. So not only did Michael Vick light the world on fire that night, he did so against the, the, the Eagles quarterback, 
that he replaced essentially. I mean, yes, he replaced Cobb. Cobb was in between McNabb and Vic, but just only for half a minute. So it was a demoralizing loss for Washington. It is still one of the most fun I've ever had watching a football game. So I think for a lot of people, that is Vic's signature performance in an Eagles uniform. But then, of course, there is also the Miracle at the Meadowlands Part 3, and, and or the Miracle at the New Meadowlands, whatever you want to call it, when the Eagles fell behind with 31-10 uh, to 10 with eight minutes left in a game that basically was going to decide who won the NFC East against the Giants at the Meadowlands. We remember this game because it's the Deshaun Jackson walk-off, but everybody forgets exactly how much Michael Vick had to do to get the team tied in order to set Deshaun Jackson up for his game-winning punt return touchdown. But in the first half, the Eagles watched helplessly as the Giants jumped to a huge lead. Can you remember a more one-sided half? I can't believe this. The Eagles are going to be trailing 24-3 at the half. You know it's going to be a battle? Let's keep fighting now. In the third quarter, Philadelphia cut the deficit to 14. But New York countered with yet another score. Manning back again. He looks, he fires, touchdown Kevin Moss. And that should wrap it up. The Giants, 31. The Eagles, 10. With 8-17 left in the game, the Giants held a seemingly insurmountable 21-point lead. You got up eyes here now. Yeah, I mean. Huh? They're going to test your football knowledge right here a little bit. Vick takes the snap. He's looking. He floats it. Good. Running with the football is selling. That's big for the strike that quick. The Eagles' hopes have just been heightened. Acres to kick off. It's an onside kick. Covered by Riley Cooper. Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! And the Giants never saw that coming. If the Eagles can score here, you are going to see the Giants very, very nervous. Ball comes back to Vic. Here comes the rush. He tucks under a man and he's going to run. 40, 35, 30. 25-20, back at the 10, down at the 6! Oh my goodness, the Eagles are alive! Just under six minutes to play. Third down, it goes to Vic, quarterback draw, he's in! We've got a one-touchdown game! This is the type of game where legends are made. MVP, baby! MVP! It is now Giants, 31, Eagles, 24. It is third and 10. Vic's back. He's looking. Here comes the rush. Vic rolling. He's going to run. Michael Vick has given the Eagles life with 2.41 to go after a 32-yard run. Vic takes the snap. He's back. He's looking. He steps up. He's going to run. He's at the 40. 35. 30. Cuts to the outside. Down at the 19 goes Michael Vick. And that will take us to the 2 minute morning. Hang on to your seats, ladies and gentlemen. This is something special. You better believe there are a lot of nervous stomachs in the stadium right now. Vic in the gun. He's back. He looks. He fires. Complete. And Macklin sidestepped and runs in for the touchdown. Macklin! And this place is in a state of shock. Michael Vick, he's got single coverage. He changes the play, gets it to him on the outside. Macklin avoids the cornerback. This is unbelievable. We are tied at 31. Don't have a letdown now. Oh, yeah, Make sure we're ready. Don't have a letdown. Be ready for two minutes? 
two minutes and overtime. All right, we got the ball back. It's two minutes, and we go win this. On New York's final possession, Philadelphia's defense held, forcing the Giants to punt with just 14 seconds remaining. Down he goes! And the Giants will have to punt. We have seen our share of miracles in Eagles-Giants game. The punt is Matt Dodge. The Eagles are going to have Deshaun Jackson back, of course. It's a duckler. Jackson takes it at the 35, fumbles it, picks it up, looks for running room. He's at the 40. He's at the 45. Oh. He's going to go! Deshaun Jackson! Oh. Wow! Game over! It's a wrap, Game baby. over! I don't care if he jumps, dives, he's running around, and he's in the end zone, and there's no time, and the Eagles win! The Eagles win! Miracle and the new Meadowlands, baby! The Eagles have just pulled off the most remarkable win I have ever seen. And the Giants fans can't believe it. This was 24-3 at the half. Oh, my God. This was 31-10 in the fourth quarter. And they found a way to win. In the game, Vic had 242 yards passing, three touchdowns, one interception, 130 yards rushing, also with a touchdown. And as you heard with, with some of those calls, I mean, the Eagles were backed up near their own end zone a couple of times, and Michael Vick just would rip off a 40-yard run like it was nothing, and the Giants couldn't stop him. They they didn't know it. They tried blitzing him, and he would get away from the blitz. They tried playing zone, and he would he would pick them apart, throwing the football. The onside's kick, I don't know how the Giants weren't ready for that onside's kick. They had to know Andy Reid likes to do that. David Akers is a specialist at the onside kick. The fact that they pulled that off was really what helped the Eagles uh, mount that comeback, but... That comeback was Michael Vick. It wasn't Deshaun Jackson. Deshaun Jackson walked it off with the punt return, and it's one of the great moments in Eagles history. But Michael Vick is what made that comeback one of the greatest comebacks in NFL history possible. If I'm thinking about his signature game, to me, it is the Giants game. I think that he was able to do what he did with eight minutes left. The way he just willed the team to victory, that, that he was completely unstoppable. You couldn't stop him. You could put... You could put the 91 Eagles defense out there. You could put the, the famed Ravens defense out there, and Michael Vick would have torn them to shreds. There was just no way he wasn't going to bring that team back in that game. Throwing the football, running the football, he couldn't be stopped. And it was it was the same against Washington. I mean, that was but Washington was a a worse team. It was not as good a team as the Giants were. And so basically Michael Vick was ba- beating up on a it was like beating up on a little kid in that particular instance. And so to me, the Giants comeback game, I'll always remember the way Mike Vick, it was basically like watching a video game, having him do what he did. That to me is Mike Vick's signature game with the Philadelphia Eagles. But again, I couldn't argue if you, if you pick the Washington game, you win 59 to 28 and you account for six touchdowns. It's pretty, it's a pretty incredible game (laughs) that Michael Vick had uh, with Andy Reid there uh, during that legendary season of 2010. Folks, that's going to do it for this edition of Eye on the Enemy. Uh, Thanks once again for listening. Don't forget, check out BleedingGreenNation.com every single day for the latest Eagles news. And leave a five-star rating and a review at the Bleeding Green Nation podcast feed at Apple Podcasts when you get a chance. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'll talk to you next time here on Eye on the Enemy. B-G-N. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. 
Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.